Hey, it's good to see you this morning. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors. If you've got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 20. That's where we're going to be this morning, Genesis chapter 20. We're in a series uh, that we've titled The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what we're looking at is, um, why does God call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when he uh, appears to Moses at the burning bush there in Exodus, just as he's about to call Moses and tell him, hey, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so Moses engages God at the burning bush in a conversation about, you know, who, who should I say sent me? And he says, well, tell him I am sent you. And by the way, it, I am is, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so, we've been exploring uh, what does God mean when he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by looking at the stories of faith, the stories of these men and their relationship with God, to see what it tells us about who God is as he shows up in the lives of these, what we call patriarchs of the Old Testament. We're towards the end of our consideration of Abraham, and um, in some ways, the chapter that we look at this morning is a bit of a surprise. We looked at Genesis chapter 12, and Abraham there, he, uh, he meets God, and God makes him a promise, and he follows God. He does what God says. Kind of a very initial faith. God says it, Abraham believes it, and he follows him. And he doesn't do it perfectly, but he does it. And Genesis 15, we looked at that God comes back and takes that promise and makes it a covenant. And that what God does in the midst of that is that Abraham's belief, his faith, gets counted for everything that Abraham needs, which is righteousness. Then in Genesis 7, Abraham's faith goes another step in, in following God, being obedient to what God has instructed him. And that we looked at it last week. We looked at the, the sign of the covenant that God gave. So listen, you're in covenant with me. Now I want you to walk in that covenant. I want you to uh, continue to become who you are in me. And so he changes his name, gives him the name, uh, moves it from Abram to Abraham and gives him the sign of the covenant. And Abram, Abraham's obedient to God in that. Well, we're going to look at chapter 20 to tell you what happens between chapter 17 and chapter 20. Um, it's really a, a high note. Abraham in those two chapters is kind of a hero. He uh, prays for the, the pagans. He, he prays for Sodom. He prays for Gomorrah. He's called a friend of God during that time. He's, he's let in on the program of what God's going to do. God comes down and confers with him about it. And Abraham, he, he intercedes. He functions just as God intended, to, intended him to, to, to be a blessing. And so Abraham, he, he's going to plead with God in those two chapters about God's justice and God's grace. And you see his theology's developing and he's growing in his knowledge of God and he's maturing. The, the man is growing into the faith that he has. It's growing into the righteousness 
that was counted to him. In many ways, Abraham's life up to chapter 20, this has been what we hope for in the Christian life. That our initial faith would continue to grow, that the content of our faith and what we believe would work itself out in our lives. And we would continue to grow in our knowledge of God, become all that God means for us to be. This is, this is what we aim for in the Christian life. And so it's so surprising when chapter 20 is the next chapter after this high water mark in Abraham's life. I want to uh, read the chapter, but I want to make a couple of observations before I do to help orient you to it. Let me say it this way, that if you'd never heard of Abraham before, uh, the title of the series would be off after the reading of this chapter. You, you'd think there was a typo. So if you'd never heard of Abraham before, you dropped in this morning, you heard the ser- title of the series is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you'd think there was a typo. You'd think, well, wait a minute, shouldn't that read the God of Abimelech and Isaac and Jacob? See, it's, what we're going to see is it's not Abraham who ends up talking to God in this chapter. It's going to be a pagan king named Abimelech. Turns out this pagan king is going to seem to be the man of character, the, the man who fears God. In fact, Abimelech, this pagan king, is going to appear to honor Abraham's wife more than Abraham does troubling chapter. Abram's walked, Abraham's walked with God for 25 years, yet in this chapter, in this chapter in his life, the content of his faith doesn't match the content of his life. But I want you to see that the object of Abraham's faith is unchanging. Look with me Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read the whole chapter and then we'll go back and talk through it. Here is what is recorded. It says this. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return to the man's wife, for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. 
But if you do not return to her, you know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told him these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, Well, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. When God caused me to wander and from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. And then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servant and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female servants so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I ask that you'd help us to see who you are in this chapter of Abraham's life. Father, I ask you would help us to see who you are in these chapters of our life. So we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, the first couple of verses provide the setting for us. The few verses after that, there's a crisis that arises, and then there's a confrontation between Abimelech and Abraham. And then at the very end, you see that there's a revolution. Look with me in verse uh, resolution. If you look with me in verse 1, let's look at the setting. It says this, that, that after the uh, events of 18 and 19, after uh, God uh, destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Abraham and Sarah, they, they move out of the neighborhood. And we're not told exactly why, but we know Abraham is a sojourner. That's his life. He's, he's, a, wanderer he's a wanderer through this land that God's promised him. And so he continues to sojourn. And then in verse 2, we have the action that sets off all of the events. If you look, it says, Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister. And then Abimelech, the king there in the land that he is, sent for and took his wife. Interestingly enough, this is not the first time Abraham's done this. 
If we went all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, the last half of Genesis chapter 12 tells of of Abraham and Sarah going to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. They go down there. Abraham's worried that the Pharaoh's going to kill him and take Sarah because at that point what he says about her, he, he spends some time flattering her before he does it because of her beauty. And so what he does is he comes up with this plan to tell a half-truth. It's not a full lie. It's just half a lie. He goes on to explain it a little later. He says, technically, I mean, you know, technically I I wasn't lying to you. She, She is my sister on my father's side, just not on my mother's side. She's my half-sister. Turns out, this isn't the last time this happens. Abraham does it in chapter 12. He does it here in chapter 20. And then a few chapters from here, in chapter 26... There will be another man who does it. It will be Abraham's son Isaac. And he will tell the same lie to another king named Abimelech. And the text continues to, uh, uh, to, to sort of shout that this, this is an area. This is a problem, a pattern of sin. In Abraham's life and in his family's life. You know, the reality is this is an action that threatened his future. See, God had promised that there was a son to come to Abraham and it was going to come through Sarah. In fact, the last time God said anything about it, he said, listen, this is going to happen within a year. Abraham comes into Gerar. He's afraid of Abimelech. He's afraid of Abimelech's people. And what he does here in verse 2 threatens this promise, this future that God has for him. And it becomes a threat to Sarah. And the question is, how does this happen? How does Abraham all of the sudden start acting like Abram? I mean, Abraham's a new man. He's been called by God. He's received promises from God. He's in covenant with God. Abraham followed God. He believed God. He demonstrated his obedience to God. I mean, Abraham is a new man. But what we discover here in the Bible, the actually... The rest of the Bible ends up working it out for us. We discover that Abraham's a new man, but he still has an old nature. He's got a sin nature. The sin nature, Paul, he talks about it as the flesh. In Galatians 5.17, he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. The flesh, it desires sin, and the Spirit, it desires God. You are born in the flesh. You are born again as a believer in the Spirit. And in the now, you are in a conflict within yourself. 
It's the conflict that Abraham's having. A conflict between the flesh and the spirit. It's like the cage match for your heart. Jeremiah the prophet reminds us in Jeremiah 17 that the heart, it's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's a battle that we all live in. It's a battle we should never quit fighting. But it's a battle if we find ourselves unaware, we walk straight into losses. Martin Luther said it this way. He says, more than a thousand times I have vowed to God that I would improve, but I have never performed what I have vowed. Hereafter I shall make no such vows because I know perfectly well that I shall not live up to them unless God is gracious and merciful to me for the sake of Christ and grants me a blessed final hour when the time comes for me to depart this miserable life. I shall not be able to stand before him with all my vows and good works. Luther says, I know this battle in me, and I know that the battle's stronger than what I can fight in my own flesh, that I need resources that are greater than my own resolve and my own willpower. And Luther knows that's where it gets him in trouble. What he needs, what he needs, what you need, what I need, what all believers need is that we need the power of the Spirit in putting off what is old and putting on what is new. Which means as believers, we've got to be honest with ourselves about what is old. The patterns in our life. The places we default to when we find ourselves afraid. The places we default to when we find ourselves not believing. See, our faith, what we believe about God, it needs to sink all the way down into our feet. That what we believe about God would work its way out in our life. That's the plea. You know what's interesting is that God is going to intervene on Abraham's part. God is going to do what Abraham does not do in this story. Look at it in verse 3 again. God shows up. He, He came to Abimelech in a dream. He comes to the pagan king in a dream and he reveals himself to this pagan. And what God says is, I'm serious. You're a dead man if you don't listen to what I have to say. See, God's reputation was on the line. So God's a covenant God. He's a God of promise. And God isn't going to let the actions of a pagan king, nor is he going to let the sin of his servant threaten what he has decreed, what he's promised, what he's covenanted, what he swore in an oath. And so God shows up. In verses 4 and 5, Abimelech makes a plea of innocence. He says, look, I I didn't touch her. All my life, I didn't touch her. 
pleads his innocence. He also tells God, he said, look, it wasn't just Abraham that lied to me. Sarah lied to me too. They're both guilty. And then he finishes it off by saying to God, didn't you see the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands? In verses 6 and 7, what God does is he comes and he says, okay, you're right. I affirm your innocence. But he says, I want you to know something. The integrity of your heart, the innocence of your hands, I want you to know what was behind that, Abimelech. And there in verse 7, God says to him, or verse 6, God says to him, I kept you from sinning against me. I did not let you touch her. See, it's God's sovereignty. Now, I want to tell you one of the bothersome things in this passage for me. I'll let you in on it, okay? God here kept Abimelech from sinning. But apparently, he did not keep Abraham from sinning. See that? God says, listen, you're innocent, Abimelech, because I ensured your innocence. I kept you from doing that. The question comes to me, well, why didn't he keep Abraham from sinning? Why doesn't he keep me from sinning? I came away from it. I wrote this. I said, we need to pray for God's restraint in our life. Pray that God would restrain us. And I would say this, it is a prayer of humility. It is a prayer that admits our weakness and cries out to God for his strength in our life. That we would pray that God's restraining grace would be all over our life. I don't want you to miss verse 7. He says to him, return, return his wife. Get, get him to pray for you. He's a prophet. There are so many things in this passage that just absolutely dumbfound me. One of them is that God is not ashamed of Abraham here. He's not embarrassed. He's my prophet, and I want you to go to him, and I want you, him to pray for you. God's plan for Abraham to be a blessing, it turns out, that's still intact. That what Abraham does to put his future in jeopardy did not change the call on Abraham's life. It didn't disqualify him from his calling, and it didn't excuse him from his calling. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. We don't have time to look at it, but one of my, one of the, a funny verse to me happens at the end of chapter 21. It's after Isaac is born, Jacob's, or Abraham's still in the area there with King Abimelech. They decide they're going to make a covenant. And Abimelech comes to him and says, okay, we're going to make this covenant. But then he says to Abraham, he says, but this is what I need you to do. I need you to swear that you're not going to lie to me. And the question is, well, why do you make someone swear that they're not going to lie to you? And you do that because they're a liar. See, Abraham 
while he's not disqualified and he's not excused, there were still consequences. There was a damage of his testimony with Abimelech. It actually gets transferred down into his son Isaac. He's going to do the very same thing. His grandson, do you know what, do you know what Abraham's grandson's going to be named? Liar. It's what Jacob means, to deceive. And Jacob's sons, they end up lying to their father about what happens to Joseph. And yet, I don't want you to miss this. This is God. He identifies himself. You know what he says? I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. think in some ways he could say, I'm the God of sinners. I'm the God of liars. Oh, I, I am who I am. And I'm their God. And what he's going to do in the world to redeem the world, he's going to do through flawed and frail and weak men and women just like you and me. Now quickly look at the confrontation, verses 8 through 13. Abimelech goes now and he's going to confront Abraham. This is, he's going to tell all his men, wake up early in the morning, tell his men they're all afraid. And then Abimelech, he's ticked off and he's questioning Abraham. And notice in verses 11 through 13, Abraham is an excuse-making factory. And he gives all the excuses that you and I give for the sin in our life. And actually, we've invented many more since then. But notice verse 11, he makes an assumption. He says, well, I, I didn't think there was any fear here of God. It's justifying the actions that he took. In verse 12, it's this half-truth rationalization on a technicality. Well, you know, technically, I didn't lie to you. Sure, I manipulated you, caused you to believe something that wasn't there. I didn't tell you the whole story, but I technically didn't lie to you. Man, that is a rampant mechanism today to sin. And in verse 13, it's self-protection. He tells him, well, this has been my plan all along. You know, I mean, God, he's the one that called me. He sent me out here to wander in all these places. And so I set up this plan, this self-protection plan, this survival mechanism. And we get the sense he's been doing it for 25 years. Now, I want you to notice two things about this. And I'm going to move on. God does not judge this directly. Listen, I, I think there are a lot of people, and it depends on how you grew up, but some of you grew up in, in things that were very difficult. And you adopted in your life 
survival mechanisms that, that got you through very difficult and hard times. And yet now as an adult or as a more mature believer, those things that you used to survive or to protect yourself, they no longer have a place in your life. While God does not judge this directly, I will tell you, it is at this moment, He will not let it continue in Abraham's life. At this point in Abraham's life, it is an act of unbelief. And God here is dealing with it, with Abraham. Your plan for self-protection, Abraham, it is now an act of unbelief. It is an act of not trusting me. And I know a lot of men and women who need to set aside the ways in which they have always protected themselves. Because at this point, it is an act of unbelief. Well, I want you to see the resolution, verses 14 through 18. Abraham, he's going to pray for Abimelech. In verse 14, actually reminds me of how surprising and reckless and overflowing and elaborate and generous, I could keep going, that grace is. See, honestly, you kind of expect verse 14 that this is where God breaks into the story and begins to confront Abraham directly and goes, okay, wait a minute. I just read verse 13. Are you blaming me? Because it sounds like, Abraham, you're blaming me. That's what I expect. Abraham says in verse 13, he says, well, when God caused me to wonder from my father's house, you know, it was God's fault. You expect God to swoop down and go, okay, Abraham, I've been patient, but I can't take this anymore. That's not what verse 14 says. In fact, it catches us by surprise. It's Abimelech coming after his fear of the Lord, and, and he's seeking to honor God, and so he's going to bless Abraham, and Abraham becomes the object of blessing, the recipient of grace. There's a blessing to Abraham, possessions and wealth, and all of it's undeserved and unmerited. It's ridiculous grace. And then it's also to Sarah in verse 16, a thousand pieces of silver. Listen, that is a ridiculous amount of money. A day laborer in that time made maybe a half a shekel a month. It would have taken Abraham 167 years to earn that kind of money. And Abimelech says it's a sign of innocence. You're vindicated. One commentator says what it, did, what it is is a gift that makes one blind to what happened. Sarah, this will, not, this will not be on your record anymore. I have paid the price of it. 
When people see you, they will see innocence. A cost that is paid, an extravagant cost. You know, the Bible doesn't call it this here, but the pattern that shows up later gets called atonement. Atonement's made so that innocence and vindication can be achieved. In fact, the greatest cost to wipe away our guilt and be declared innocent is still millennia to come in the Bible. But it happens when Jesus allows himself to be arrested and beaten and nailed to a cross and to die your death. That's the cost. For you to be declared innocent and vindicated. Well, in verses 17 and 18, Abraham prays. The curse is lifted. Wombs are opened. He's acting on behalf of God. And yet we're left in the chapter reminded that Abraham is going to have to trust God to act on behalf of him. Because while Abraham prays for Abimelech and all of his people and those wombs wombs are opened, we leave chapter 20 and Abraham is married to a woman whose womb is still closed. And while Abraham was God's design to act for those people, Abraham's reminded God is going to have to show up and act for us. What Abraham needed most, he could not do on his own. He needed God to do. You come away from this chapter and you think, okay, who is God? Who is God? God of unbelievable, extravagant, ridiculous, unexplainable, unmerited, undeserved grace. A couple of things I'd say, and we'll wrap it up. One, what you see in Abraham is that his future is at war with his past for every present moment. It's the same with us. Our identity in Christ is at war with our flesh for, for the right now. And Abraham in this story let his sin, his old ways, threaten his promised future. And yet we are called to so much more and we are empowered with so much more. Paul will wrestle with this in Romans chapter 7 don't understand my actions. I don't know why I'm doing what, I, what I'm doing. I don't, I don't want to do what I'm doing. And the things I do want to do, I'm not doing. He concludes it with, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me? There was a war raging inside of him and it's raging inside of all of us. The battle between who we were and who we will be one day. And the battle is right now and it takes place in this body and in this flesh. And yet what Paul will declare, I know who will deliver me. 
It's none other than Jesus, the Son of God. And because of Jesus, the Son of God, and my faith in Him, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's the only way to win the battle. It's the confession of your weakness, the dependence upon Him for strength in every moment of our life. Well, the second thing I take away from this is that our security with God is not conditional. Our security with God is solely on the basis of grace. And if there's anything that bothers us about this passage, it's the seeming injustice. It seems like there should be more, more discipline or more lecture or more disapproval or more disappointment. I mean, where's the outrage? But I wouldn't want you to come away from this concluding that God doesn't care about the sin in your life. He cares infinitely. I mean, listen. The Bible is a testimony of God's hatred towards sin. And he hates lies. In fact, Satan is called the father of lies. But at the same time, he loves sinners. The grace of God in this chapter and in every chapter. Every chapter of the Bible and every chapter of our life, that grace comes at infinite cost to God. And it cost Him His own, His very own Son. And because of that, His grace is infinite. There's no bottom to it. He's generous and overflowing with it. It's never-ending and never exhausted. And it's poured out on those who will receive it by faith without end. A couple weeks ago at the men's conference, I was talking to the guys about sin in our life and the grace of God and what do we do with sin? You know, I mean, so often we, we have all these strategies to manage our sin or to excuse our sin or to rationalize it or to or try to pay for it, you know, to make it go away. And the ultimate answer to the sin in your life is confession, that you would confess your sins believing that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And all of that is because of His grace. So I closed with this deal that Jerry Bridges wrote in a book called Transforming Grace. I thought it'd be good for us this morning. In a passage where we are confronted with the grace of God that seems to make absolutely no sense except for the fact of who God is. Listen, God's grace in this passage had nothing to do with Abraham. It had everything to do with who God is. And Bridges says, listen, you might not understand God's grace if you think these things. You might not understand God's grace if you live with a vague sense of God's disapproval. You think God's frowning at you, that he's a grumpy dad, You think he's always mad and let down? 
If that's the case, you don't understand grace. You don't understand grace if you feel sheepish about bringing your needs before Him when you've just failed. You just, you just blew it. You didn't just sin. You sinned of the sin you repented of 10,000 times. And so you think you can't go to Him anymore. If that's the case, you don't understand grace. So you don't understand grace if you think His grace is something that makes up the difference between the best you can do and what it is He expected of you. You don't understand grace if you feel like you deserve an answer to prayer because of your hard work and sacrifice or you get up and pray for two hours or you read Jeremiah in one sitting or you serve at the church or you do so much for Him so that He owes you. You don't understand grace. You don't understand grace if you assume that you've sinned so many times you've used up all your credit of forgiveness. You don't understand grace if you feel more confident going to Him because you've been faithful with your quiet times. He says you don't understand grace if you can't honestly say that you see yourself as blameless in His eyes. If you feel dirty, if you feel ashamed, if you feel like when God looks at you, He sees a dirty, filthy, no-good sinner, you don't understand grace. And you don't understand grace if you think you can do something to make Him love you more or love you less. You think that you can do things and He'll love you more, or if you mess up, His love for you begins to diminish you don't understand Christ. God's love for Abraham, his promise to Abraham, his commitment to Abraham, and Abraham's future. That's a grace to Abraham. Even in this chapter in his life, even when he knew better, even when he was mature, even when he was beginning to know God and understand God in ways that he never had before. He was still capable of one moment and one decision to threaten everything that God had promised him. And certainly, he's not a man who earned the grace of God. It was God's grace unconditional because it was God's promise unconditional. And what God's promised to Abraham, and listen, what He's promised to you, that if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, that if you by faith receive the grace of my Son, Jesus Christ, I will clothe you in my son Jesus and that will count for everything you need. You will be righteous in my eyes. That's his promise. You can't earn the grace you long for. You receive it by faith. Counting on all that Jesus did for you. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, in some ways, the passage we look at today, Genesis 20, we can hardly believe it's even in the Bible. 
I'm encouraged and reminded all over again that this is not the product of of man's work, that this is inspired by your spirit. And that, Father, you relentlessly and unashamedly tell the truth about who we are. And, Father, it's in the midst of that that we're able to see so clearly who you are. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob the God of infinite, extravagant, and unending grace. Father, for men and women here this morning that are racked with guilt or consumed with shame, Father, for those that feel dirty or useless, Father, for those that frankly feel like you, there's no way that you could love them anymore pray, Father, that they would see your grace shine through this. Because not only are you the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you're the God of every one of us who are sinners saved by grace. And so, Father, draw them near this morning to your Son, Jesus, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen.